0: Good morning, my friend. It's early in the morning on 19 July. It's Wednesday morning, 2023. We are one day past book launch for Hope is the First Dose, and I hope you've already gotten your copy. If you haven't, I want to talk just for a few minutes this morning, not really about my book, but about why it's so important to change the way that we think. I'm always telling you about self-brain surgery and about learning how to think differently than you do. And I've been influenced a lot by a neuroscientist, a physician who's actually a psychiatrist. He's written numerous really important books. But Jeffrey Schwartz is a, a psychiatrist in Los Angeles who has done a lot of the really important work about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and how to treat that incredibly limiting mental issue. And and he also is one of the real leaders in this idea of understanding that the mind and the brain are two very separate entities and that the mind has tremendous influence over the brain, which is a very biblical concept, as I'm always telling you. But I want to share a couple of thoughts with you this morning that I've been having around this idea of mind and brain and why it's so important to understand that the way you think changes how you live. It's it's crystal clear. We all know this. We all know it because we understand that when you. I'm going to give you an example. Let me just change the direction for a second. I woke up this morning, and I was feeling very emotional. I want to just be real vulnerable with you for a minute. Feeling very emotional, not about the book or how many people are out there reading it or any of that, but but this book is the most intimate and vulnerable thing that I've ever done. We talk in the first few chapters about exactly what happened with our son, Mitch, and exactly what it felt like, and exactly what we did in our family in those early days. And we go really deep into that part of the story. And I want to be crystal clear, if you haven't read Hope is the First Dose yet, it is not memoir, but it starts and it feels like memoir. In fact, the first hundred or so pages are story, that they're our story, my story, Lisa's story, our children's story, of what happened and what it felt like. And the reason I chose to do that is because I don't want I didn't want to write another memoir. The whole purpose of this book is to move from what I gave you and I've seen the interview to something prescriptive. Instead of descriptive, here's what happened, here's that the fact that we made it through that. Hard time and maybe you can too. That was what I've seen the end of you. The new book is prescriptive. I'm a doctor and I've been doing this a long time and I know how to help people when they're hurting. And when I was hurting, and I always will be hurting, but when in the acute phase of that injury of losing our son, I came to this place where I realized I needed to tell you the things that you can reliably do to find your way forward. And so it's a prescription, a treatment plan. Because I'm a doctor, I have to give you things in in medical terms. I'm just sitting here this morning at five thirty in the morning. I'm have a cup of coffee with you and just share the fact that I woke up really emotional this morning. And, and part of it is I want Mitch to be honored with this book. And I don't mean that in terms of how many people buy it and how many awards it wins or if I get another one of those Christian Book Award plaques or another top five gold record from Focus on the Family or any of those cool things that happen from I've Seen the Interview. That's not what I mean by honoring Mitch. It will honor Mitch if people connect to his story in a way that helps them have a better life. If they connect to his story in a way that helps them come alongside other people who are hurting as caregivers, if, if hope is the first dose can be that EpiPen that you carry in your purse just in case somebody around you is going through a massive thing, you can deliver some treatment, some care for them to help them, that will honor my son. And that we're all in this thing together. We're all going to have these massive things occur. And so we've tried to give you a treatment plan. So this morning, I want to just give you a couple of things to think about. We're going to talk a little bit more about Romans 12, 2 and what it means to transform your mind. And then we're going to talk a little bit about things I learned from Jeffrey Schwartz and something new that I've learned from T.D. Jakes, Bishop T.D. Jakes. I've never read one of his books before, but I'm reading one now, and it's incredible so far. Disruptive Thinking by T.D. Jakes and something I've learned from him that has turned out to be a thought that I just can't get out of my mind and if you're watching this video, the, the lighting is awful. It's dark outside and I've just got this overhead fluorescent light. And so the lighting's really bad. But I wanted you to see my face this morning. I'm gonna probably release the video for the paid subscribers only because I'm wearing a hoodie and I'm drinking coffee <laughs> and the lighting's really bad. And I just but I wanted you to look in my eyes. My dad always said when he was gonna say something important to us, he would snap his fingers and he would say, Hey, look at my eyes. Look at my eyes. Cause you can see what somebody's really trying to get at when you look in their eyes. So this morning, I'm going to give you a very short conversation. I'm going to give you two two quotes, a quote from T.D. Jakes and a quote from Jeffrey Schwartz, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz. I'm going to give you one scripture, and I'm going to give you one idea from Hope is the First Dose, and I'm just going to try to help you process all these massive things you're going through, either as an experiencer, the, the patient in this metaphor, if you will, or as a caregiver if you're coming along with somebody else. Because it's really true. You are not stuck with the brain that you have. Trauma will make you think that it's never going to be able to be better. That your past experiences have labeled you and shamed you and hurt you in some way that's irrevocable and irreparable and it's not and and that there's no hope for going forward. But the fact is you are not stuck, my friend, with the brain you have. You are not stuck with the thoughts you think. You are not stuck with the past mistakes that you've made. You are not stuck because you can change your life if you're willing to change your mind. And in order to do that, you could start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called Self Brain Surgery. You can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better and be happier. And the good news is, you can start today. We're on season eight, and I started using that version of the intro with Lisa back in season six. So we're more than 200 episodes in. And every time I think I need to do a new intro for the new season of the podcast, I I just can't stop loving that. Let me know if you think I should update it or if you think I should leave it. I just love how she comes in and talks about faith and science smashing together. And uh, I just love hearing her voice. But anyway, I know one of these days I'm going to need to update the intro and outro to the podcast. Man, we've had some unbelievable interviews. There's, it's funny because this book launch feels a little bit weird and maybe that's why I'm somewhat emotional about it. It's, it's like people always say this, having a, launching a book is like birthing a baby and I don't ever say that out loud because I'm a man and I haven't had a baby and I know that having a baby in real life is nine months of body changes and, and incredible sacrifice on the behalf of women who become mothers and the unbelievable pain that you go through. So I don't ever, like to use the metaphor of having a book is like birthing a baby. But in some sense, here's what it is. You pour your heart and soul into creating this book to try to help other people. And you you put everything you have out there on the page. And some someone once said that writing is like opening a vein, like bleeding out. You're giving your life in some way to your readers. And you do all of that and then you timidly hold it up and you present it to your agent. And they generally say something like, yeah, it's a good start. <laughs> You've worked for, for two years on this manuscript and you hand it to somebody and they say, well, it really needs an edit. Holy smokes. You did a nice job, but you just, it can be better. And then you go through this painstaking process of ripping open a wound that you thought was healed when this manuscript was done and you do it again basically you write a second and a third and a fourth draft and really that's why stephen king has so famously said that you ought to write a terrible first draft he he says that nobody gets to see his first draft not his wife not his agent nobody he writes the book sits it on a shelf for a, a week or two and then he comes back to it and gets brutal and writes the second draft and that's the one that he shows to his wife and his agent and all that you, you write this terrible first draft and get it get it over with But nevertheless, you do that thing, you spend all this time, you present the manuscript to your agent, they bring it back and tell you need revisions and edits and changes and all that stuff. And finally, after, for me, it's years. I don't, I really don't understand people like Max Licato that can come out with a book or two every single year. But for me, it's, it takes a long time. Because I'm, maybe it's because I'm a doctor and I'm trying to give you a really solid treatment plan. And I think of going through all these FDA trials and stuff before I give it to you. But nevertheless, it takes a long time. And then we get to this place where it's time and we sell it to a publisher and there's this comp- competition sort of publishers get interested. They, they bid on it and it goes through all these rounds of people trying to convince you that they're the good publishing partner. We chose to go with Waterbrook again, like we did last time because they did such a nice job with, I've seen the interview. And then after that, it starts all over again. You get assigned an editor. Susan Jaden is the same editor I worked with for I've seen the interview. And, and she takes the manuscript and reads it and then comes back with a host of things that she wants you to tighten up or change. And then after that, once you finally get that final manuscript done with the big first edit with the acquiring editor, then it gets passed off to a copy editor. And they go through all kinds of things. I've seen the interview. I remember – there were all these little things, like I would mention that a patient was watching a particular television show, and they would come back and say, wait, you said it was 2008, but you said they were watching this show on TV, and that show didn't come out until 2009, and all these little things that from your memory, that when you put them on paper years later, they can be a little inaccurate or something could be quite not. So the the second editor, the copy editor, picks up all that stuff and makes sure it's, it doesn't jar the reader into something, because you don't want your, your reader to be somebody who really remembered a particular thing correctly and you wrote it incorrectly and that stops them from progressing in the book because they're like wait, that that show wasn't even on TV then so you don't want any of that sort of stuff so you fix all that and you get it all right and you line the timeline up and make sure everything's right and correct and then there's a legal edit to make sure you didn't quote somebody's book without giving them credit or make sure that you didn't have too many lines of a song. There's all these rules copyright rules if you quote somebody's song more than a certain number of lines that you have to pay them royalties and all this stuff. And if you mention somebody's name, you have to have a waiver if they're a real person that says it's okay with them that you use their name or told their story. And there's all this stuff. And it takes months, okay? It takes months. And people are always out there on social media like, when's your book coming out? They have no idea all the things that go into it. And then once you finally get the manuscript, it's passed off to proofreaders. So these are people who don't have any dog in the fight. They don't have expertise in your field. They don't have any... Knowledge of you or emotional tie to you to not want to hurt your feelings or any of that. And they're going to come back. And for me, it was particularly frustrating with hope as the first dose because I, I told some jokes and I tried to use humor. I knew I was dealing with heavy subject material. So I tried to use humor as a way of lightening it up for you several times. And, and, and I would tell a joke, and the proofreader would say, I don't get that. I don't understand what you meant by this. And, and we'd have to go back and forth and change things around a little bit to make sure that you want to have this sort of I – don't, I don't know exactly how to say it without sounding offensive, but you want to have this kind of lowest common denominator, right? You want your book to be readable, approachable, and helpful to an astrophysicist out there who's a super nerd that if you don't write – elegantly enough it won't make sense to them and they'll they'll think it's lowbrow and they won't want to read it all the way down to somebody that maybe doesn't have much of an education but really is hurting and needs help and you want them to be able to read it too so you want to avoid too much lingo and concepts that aren't explained properly so for me writing from neuroscience and stuff about neurosurgery and brain tumors and all that I try to be really careful with the medical terminology to make sure I explain things in a way that anybody can understand, even if they don't have a, a background. So the proofreaders are really important because they'll send a proofreader who's a graduate student. They'll send another one to a proofreader who's a, a plumber or a homemaker somebody with a different kind of background or job. So that at the end of the day, you try to thread that needle very carefully where you can give somebody a book that – hits all those targets where everybody can read it. Okay, now I told you I wasn't going to talk about the book, and here we are 13 minutes into this episode, and we've been talking about the book. I did all that to say this. I woke up really emotional this morning and really concerned that have I done a good job honoring my son, and is it going to help people? Is it really going to be a valuable treatment plan like I wanted it to be? And I want to make sure that you understand as you go into this book, first of all, if you're one of these people that skips epilogues and prologues, please don't in this book. Don't skip the epilogue because the epilogue sets up a lot of the things that you're going to need to be thinking about as you get into the story so you don't miss them. And the prologue comes back to the first and ties some things together. And if you skip it, There are some people that just start with chapter one and read to the end of the last chapter, and they skip the beginning and ending material. But when I write a book, if I put something in the epilogue or prologue, it's because you need it to understand the story, and there's stuff in there that's going to help your life. So don't skip the epilogue and prologue, okay? Here we are again talking about the book. I said that to say this, okay? I'm giving you a treatment plan. So what to do when the massive thing happens, when trauma, tragedy, and other massive things occur in your life? How can you step through that and still find hope again, find happiness again, find peace again, find maybe even joy again? How can you do that? Or how can you help somebody else not succumb to the lies that trauma tells them and to not become a person whose entire life is defined by that massive thing? How can we do that? And that's what the treatment plan is. But one of the things that happens in trauma, here's the point of this episode. We're 15 minutes and 19 seconds in, and I'm finally telling you what this episode's about. Uh, thank you for allowing me to ramble, but I think it's important. Here's what it's about when you encounter major trauma, you will begin to hear a set of significantly negative thoughts that tell you things like it's your fault, it's irreparable, you can't fix it, you'll never be okay again, this is always going to feel just like it does, you're never going to be loved again, all these things. And the problem is those thoughts are based on past experiences and traumas that you felt in the past and they are wired into synapses that you've already made that don't have anything to do with this actual event or the reality of what's happening in your life right now. Okay? And so in order to... To master that, to do that Second Corinthians ten five thing of taking captive every thought. In order to do that, Romans twelve two thing about learning to be transformed by re- the renewing of your mind. You've got to get in control of that thought loop. You've got to get ahead of it and learn how to biopsy those thoughts and look at them and inspect them and decide if they're true and if they're not true. You got to transplant. Thoughts that are true to go forward because thoughts become things. They become DNA changes. They become neurotransmitters. They become hormones. They become passed down to generations and create issues with your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They they become things. And so it's super important. It's critical. It's It's life-saving to get ahead of that negative thought loop. And to be aware that you're going to have those negative, sometimes false thoughts when you encounter trauma so that when you do encounter trauma, the first thought that will pop into your head is, wait, I'm in real danger here because my brain is getting ready to start lying to me and I need to be ready to take control of that. Okay, That's the EpiPen in your pocket, friend, that will keep you from having this life-threatening thought anaphylaxis that will kill you when you experience trauma. Okay, But one of the lies that we've bought into really as a society, one of the lies that is so harmful that can create despair and make you feel stuck is that your brain is fixed and unchangeable and that you got it from your parents and that you can't do anything about it. And that's just the way I am. It drives me crazy when I hear people say, when I get mad, I just blow up and I yell at people and I cuss people out and I, and I, Enraged, And that's just how I am. I come from a long line of hot-headed people, and I'm just stuck with that. Or I'm just prone to depression, and when when something happens, I feel bad, and I need my medicine, or I need my alcohol, or I need my whatever to deal with that. It's just how I am. I'm wired that way. But the fact is, friend, you may have inherited a predisposition to behave a certain way when you encounter a certain thing, and you may be wired that way. But we know now from directed neuroplasticity and from neuroscience, it is absolutely possible for you to change how your brain behaves and the way that you feel. And the number one determinant of that behavior change is changes in how you think. And here's the quote from Jeffrey Schwartz that I want you to understand. This guy is the probably the most important and successful thinker about obsessive compulsive disorder and he's helped thousands of patients with that disorder and he's written some incredible books one of them's called you are not your brain which is really important but the mind and the brain is the deep nerd level science book that he wrote that i love so much about the difference between the mind and the brain i'm really working to try to get him on the podcast he is hard to get a hold of so if you know somebody who knows jeff schwartz please tell him i want him on the podcast He's got a wall of people in front of him. It's hard to get to him, but I'm working on it. I'm going to bring Jeffrey Schwartz to the podcast someday. Here's what he said. Listen, please, friend, listen, take a sip of coffee with me just for a second. Take a pause here. Okay. I needed that drink of coffee. Here's what Jeffrey Schwartz said. It is the brain's astonishing power to learn and unlearn, to adapt and change, to carry with it the inscriptions of the experiences Of our experiences that allows us to throw off the shackles of biological materialism for it is the life we lead that creates the brain we have. It is the life we lead that creates the brain we have. What does that mean? It means that yes, you are born with a certain set of genetic predispositions to things. You are born with a certain set of things that you got from your parents and they feel unchangeable. And the world wants you to believe that you are stuck with your genes, that you can't change it. Your enemy wants you to feel hopeless about that. That's just how I am. The fact is, Jesus said, If you want to come unto me, you need to die to yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You want to lay down yourself and become more like him. Romans 12, 2 says, don't conform to the world anymore. And it doesn't just mean stop looking like culture and stop doing the same things that all those other people did. That's how it was always taught, especially my church growing up, so legalistic. And the idea is you quit behaving like those sinners out there. You quit, you know, acting like that. You stop doing that. That's not what it means. It partly means that. Sure, it does. There's always a grain of truth in these heresies. But we're going to have an episode soon about many heresies, these internal thoughts that we have that are not theologically sound, that are actually heresies that keep you from finding the freedom and abundance that Jesus wants you to have. We're going to do a mini heresy. In fact, remind me, send me a comment in a few days and say, hey, I want that mini heresy episode because I don't want to forget. It's been bouncing around my head for a while. Here's what it means. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world any longer, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's what it means. It means that you can change the way your brain works and you can make your mind work for you instead of against you by learning how to change the way you think. I saw a book the other day popped up on a list of books about Thinking and hope and life change that I just saw and it's called disruptive thinking a daring strategy to change how we live lead and love and I want to tell you something right now friend. two times in my life I have been driving and listening to an audiobook, and I heard something so powerful that I had to pull my truck over to the side of the road to either text Lisa and tell her to remind me to talk to her about it or to bookmark it so that I wouldn't forget to tell you about it later this is one of those two times the other time was john bevere's book the awe of god when he said something that broke me down i pulled over i was on my way to my friend alan kristen's house with their dogs bringing them back we'd babysat their dogs <laughs> babysat we dogs sat their dogs over the weekend and i was driving the dogs back liberty and cody and reagan on their way to their house listening to john bevere and he said something i pulled over and wept and wrote it down and made a note in Evernote, my little note-keeping app, and I sent Lisa a text about it, and I shared it with John Bevere. I texted him and told him that he had made me pull my car over to the side of the road. I'll share that story with you another time. T.D. Jakes did it to me yesterday. On the launch day of my new book, On My Way to the Hospital, I was listening to T.D. Jakes. And again, I don't know. Please don't write me and tell me anything about his theology or where he's anything negative about him. I don't, all I know is this guy's a leader. He's a tremendous writer, and his voice on the audible is like the voice of God. It's like James Earl Jones and Darth Vader. Like he's got this incredible, deep, powerful voice. You just, when he speaks, you're like, holy cow, I need to listen to this guy. I don't know all about. I mentioned his name and somebody said, oh, he's a prosperity gospel guy. I don't know that. I do know that he's writing a book about how you think. And so far, I can tell you I'm three chapters in. So far, every single thing he said has been theologically sound and it's solid. But this one line, even if I get nothing else out of this book, this is the reason God put it in front of me so far. I can tell you this one line that's going to change your life today if you pay attention to it. Here it is. T.D. Jakes said, and again, the book is Disruptive Thinking, A Daring Strategy to Change How We Live, Lead, and Love. Here's the line. The older we get, the longer we live, the more we realize that we were born looking like our parents, but we die looking like our decisions. Listen to that again. If you haven't. If it hadn't hit you between the eyes yet, it's getting ready to. The longer we live, the more we realize that we are born looking like our parents, but we die looking like our decisions friend, that is 100% true from a neuroscience standpoint. It is 100% true from a scriptural standpoint. It is 100% true from an experiential standpoint. You can absolutely predict how you will look, feel, and behave when you die by critically examining the things that you think about every day. And if one of those things is, I can't change this because it's just how I am. I got it from my mom and dad. My dad taught me to be this way. I can't be any different than that. Guess what? That will become true in your life. Friend, if hopelessness and despair and anxiety and depression and obesity and alcoholism and all those things were gifted to you by your parents, you will be stuck with them unless you decide to no longer conform to the pattern that the world handed you, but to rather be transformed and the transformation Paul tells us in the New Testament. And if you came from my background, Paul was basically, we talked about Paul more than we talked about Jesus, to my shame. The scriptures that were preached and pushed and and taught and we memorized mostly from Paul. Now, obviously, statistically, that's reasonable because Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. But we talked a lot more about Paul than we did about Jesus. And I think because you can distill some of the things he says into rules that you could then make people behave and follow. But when Paul says it, you ought to listen to it because God ordained that he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And he said the way to renew, the way to transform your life, the way to disrupt these harmful patterns of thinking is to change how you think. Renew your mind. The guy who wrote Lamentations told us your mercies never end. They are new Every morning, and now we know from neuroplasticity, you make a whole batch of new brain cells every night when you sleep, and they are looking for a job, my friend, and they will automatically wire into your old thought patterns and behaviors unless you give them a new job, and the way to give them a new job is to change the stuff you think about. That's why Paul said in Philippians 4, Think about good stuff. Think about noble stuff. Think about kind things. Think about loving things. Think about noteworthy things. And you will stop feeling so anxious, my friend. You are not stuck with the brain you have. You are not stuck with it. But you will die looking like your decisions. So the question for you today, one day after hope is the first dose has been born into the world, the question I came here to ask you is going to require one more sip of coffee. Hold on. The question is, Do you want to die looking like your decisions? You're going to. So the question then really is what decisions do you want to look like? Do you want a whole pile of excuses because you were handed a certain way of thinking and behaving from your folks Or do you want to die looking like a bunch of good decisions, and the first one of which you made on the 19th of July, 2023, when you said, hey, this way I've always thought, this decision that I need this particular thing to make me stop feeling, or this decision that I have to behave a certain way, or my willingness to blow up on somebody when I'm angry, or my willingness to go down into a dark hole every time somebody overlooks me or passes over me or is mean to me, or my inability to think that God really loves me or can forgive me or my desire, my my decision that I can never find happiness again since this thing happened or that person died or this diagnosis came into our family. Is that the decision you want to look like when you die? Or do you want to transform your life? Do you want to change everything? Do you want to make a new brain for yourself? Because friend, you are not stuck with the brain you have. The older you get, yes. You realize you were born looking like your folks, but you die looking like your decisions. But even the neuroscientists now are saying it clearly. It is absolutely crystal clear that this incredible brain in your head, my friend, Behaves according to how you tell it to behave. It's the brain's astonishing power, Jeffrey Schwartz said, to learn and unlearn, to adapt and change, to carry with it the inscriptions of our experiences that allows us to throw off the shackles. Remember Hebrews 12? Cast off. Anything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangers and the thought processes that are holding you back, my friend, look in my eyes. If you're one of the paid subscribers and you're watching this video, look in my eyes right now with the bad lighting and everything in my my hoodie, with my cup of coffee. Look in my eyes. You have to believe the, the sentence Jeffrey Schwartz wrote. It is the life you lead that creates the brain you have. It is not your parents'. It is not your grandparents. It is not the mistakes you've made. You can choose those things to become true if you want. But if you want to come alive again after the massive thing, if you want to take up the treatment plan that I've given you and hope is the first dose, I'm holding it up to the camera right now. If you want to know how to change your mind and change your life, you have to believe you're going to die looking like the decisions that you make. You're going to. So what decisions do you want to make? Are you ready to make some radical changes? Listen, applying the treatment plan, friend, it hurts, okay? Self-brain surgery is not easy. It's going to leave a mark. It's going to leave a scar. It's going to require some soul surgery. It's going to hurt a little bit, but it will change your life because there is a treatment plan, and hope is the first dose. Go get it. Read it. Live it. Change those decisions.